Be seated. In 1883, Karl Marx passed away. Just prior to his death, on the day of his uh, death, a housekeeper came into his room and asked him if he had any last words. And he got angry with her and he kicked her out and he said, No, last words are for those who haven't said enough already. Last words are for those who haven't said enough already. Well, I want to strongly disagree with Karl Marx. I think um, last words can be incredibly important. They can be incredibly profound. They can be incredibly insightful into the, the nature and the character of someone. For instance, George Washington, on the day that he passed away, some of his final words included this. He said to his doctor, Doctor, I die hard, but I am not afraid to go. I die hard, but I'm not afraid to go. And if you think about the life of Washington and the close calls he had, that makes a lot of sense. I die hard, but I'm not afraid to go. And I believe it was 1972, I might be wrong on the year, but when John Wayne passed away, he was with his wife, or his wife was with him. And I guess he was passing in and out of, of consciousness and recognition. And at some point, she asked him, John, do you know who I am? And he said, of course I know who you are. You're my girl. I love you. I thought, wow, that's, that's good. That's well played, Mr. Wayne. Um, some kind of show a little bit of the character of somebody. Um, Nostradamus, the, the controversial and, and famous uh, prognosticator of the future, uh, he, his last words were his final prediction. He said, tomorrow at sunrise, I will not be here. <laughs> And he was right. It might be the only time he ever was, but he was right. Beethoven's last words, friends, applause, the comedy is over. And then a, a few others, sometimes um, they can be funny. James Rogers, was his, the events of his life um, were not funny. He was being executed for murder. And he was going before a firing squad, and they asked him, do you have any last request and he said yes I would like a bulletproof jacket <laughs> um, Groucho Marx is reported to have said in his final breath this is no way to live and uh, and one of my favorites more of a more of an act a fellow by the name of Richard Mellon I don't know if that name is familiar to you millionaire uh, founder of Alcoa and uh, he and his brother, and I can appreciate it, he and his brother had for seven decades a game of tag going on. Boys never grow up. So uh, they'd been playing tag back and forth their entire adult lives. And as he lay in his final moments, surrounded by his family, he called his brother in, and his brother l bent in to listen to him, to hear these final words of whatever he wanted to say. And Richard put his hand on his shoulder and said, Tag, you're it. <laughs> final tag and he said and he passed away and I was going to be it for the rest of my life so uh, and, and I share these with you just because they final words I, I think
can, can reveal a lot about the character, the nature, the, the personality, the passion of somebody when, when they're able to have those kind of moments. And it'd be interesting to do a study of, of what final words tell us. And there's a lot of them you can pull up. I had a lot more that I pulled. But, but you, get, you get the idea. And um, what we're going to do in these next six weeks together, in this season of Lent as we build to the celebration of Easter is we are going to look at the, the words that Jesus spoke from the cross. I, I wanted to call it, in fact, I initially did call it final words. That's a little tricky because they wouldn't be his final words. There'd be a, a resurrection. But, but the final words of this part of his ministry and certainly these words that, that Jesus speaks, seven words, when we say words, phrases, and sentences that, that he speaks from the cross, because... I believe that, that as Jesus is doing his greatest act, that is his sacrifice on the cross, as he's, he's giving his greatest act, he offers his greatest words. They're a sermon, profound revelation for us of, of who God is and, and who we are called to be. And, and just the challenge of, of Jesus even speaking these words um, meant they were important. Remember, crucifixion was death by suffocation. You suffocated on the cross. That's how death happened. We often think about the wounds and the, 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 the bleeding out, but really what happened is, as your body slumped, you compresses the diaphragm. You can't get air. And so part of the, the, the pain of crucifixion was having to push up on your feet, nailed to a cross, to catch air. And so for every breath that he takes and every word that he speaks, it comes as a great act of, of effort. It's, it's not something to be taken lightly. So when Jesus speaks in these seven phrases, we need to listen very, very carefully to what he says and, and what he reveals. And so we're going to do that over these weeks together. Words from the cross each week lurk, looking at something that Jesus said in those final moments of, of this his life. And so we start today with Luke 23. Just a few verses, just three verses, Luke 32 through 34. Jesus is now on the cross. He's been led to that place and, and he has been hoisted there between the two criminals. And this is what we read. It says, two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the skull, they crucified him there, along with the criminals, one on his right and the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. May God add his blessing hear the reading of his word. And friends, let us pray. Lord, we, uh, we pray that you'd help us to hear, to hear your word for us today the power of the words that you speak and what they reveal about who you are and who we are called to be. Speak to us in these moments and inspire us and fill us and empower us by your Holy Spirit. We pray in Christ Jesus. Amen and amen. So these words that Jesus speaks, we find them throughout each of the Gospels. Uh, these seven phrases and uh, words that Jesus speaks from the cross. The Gospel of Luke gives us the first the second and the seventh. The first, the second, and the seventh. And it is, I don't believe, any 
coincidence that it's Luke who shares with us these first words. Because Luke's gospel wants to make it clear for us, wants us to understand very deeply and profoundly that Jesus came for the needy. He came to reach those who were often on the outside of the, the circle of um, influence and significance and, and value uh, as humans defined it. He came for those um, who often didn't have a place to let them know they were welcomed and they were invited in. And as he comes for the needy, that is good news for us because here's one thing that the scriptures make very, very clear. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We talked about that. All have sinned. All of us have sinned. All of us know both from our study of God's word and from our awareness of our own human condition that we have all failed to be fully who God's called and created us to be. So if we have all sinned, then we all share the same need. We need forgiveness. And so for Luke to be focused as so often he was in telling Jesus' story as it relates to those who are needy, what greater need do we have than forgiveness? And that is the very first words that Jesus speaks. And they challenge us because, one, they inspire us. We'll talk about that, of, of the very nature of God. But it also challenges us because it is so counter um, to our instinct. It's so, it's so counter to, to our very nature to, to embrace this kind of radical forgiveness. We just don't forgive very easily. I shared with you last week that when I sit down with, with couples as they're getting ready to get married, that one of those questions I'll ask them individually is how well does he or she say I'm sorry? Talk about this. How well does he or she say I'm sorry? Because of talking, and we talked about that need to be honest and, and confessional. But there's a follow-up question to that. And the follow-up question is always this. How well does he or she, through action and through words, Say, I forgive you. How well do we and others forgive? Because that is hard for us. It's just, it's just not, at least, again, maybe it's not fair to project. Maybe it's not as hard for you. It's, not, it's hard for me. It's, it's not the way that I react when I've been wronged. I tend to want to get even. I was flipping through the, the TV channels the other day, and I stopped on uh, a couple years ago. They did a movie of the old 80s television show, The A-Team. Some of you may remember either watching the television show or, or saw the movie. The movie's in, but, um, but it, it caught my attention. I've watched it enough anyway. And uh, there's a scene in it. If you know anything about the, the premise of the old A-Team, they're wrongly accused of a crime. They're running from the law, that kind of a, a setup. And while they're out doing running from the law, they, they do good things. Uh, the movie has a similar kind of theme. And so at this one place in the movie, after they'd all been in prison, the four guys had been in prison in different places for a crime they didn't commit. Um, uh, Liam Neeson's character, Hannibal, and Bradley Cooper's character, Face, they've been busted out and they come together for the first time. And, and Bradley Cooper's character looks at Liam Neeson and says, I'm going to guess you didn't get religion on the inside. And Liam Neeson responds, no. I got revenge. I got revenge, meaning that's what's fueling him. That's what he wants. He's out and they're busted out because they want to get even with those who have caused them the suffering. That's, that's my gut reaction. That's the way I react. So, so knowing my own nature, I then am confronted by this 
picture that Christ gives us. I mean, think about this and, and, and as just this, this tension for us. Because Jesus, the one who is God and from God, the one who came as the Son of God and the Lamb of God to show compassion, to show grace, who welcomed the outsider, healed the afflicted, cared for those who had been marginalized and cast aside, welcomed the outcast. This Jesus who gives us this picture of this perfect love of God who touches, others who, uh, who, who touches those whom others turn away from, welcomes, others, welcomes those who others say don't have a place. I mean, this is that constant compassion and love of God that we see over and over in the person of Jesus. And yet it is said that, that Jesus was the best of humanity. He showed us the very best of humanity, that there was none who has ever lived like him and none who ever will come again like him. So this perfect picture of love and grace and hope and compassion in the very last week of his life experienced the very worst of humanity. In the last, the one who was the best of humanity in the last week of his life experienced the very worst of humanity. I mean, think about the events that get Jesus to the place that we read from this morning. The events that led to his crucifixion. The fact that the person who betrayed him was not an acquaintance, was not a, a religious leader from the outside, but was one of his closest friends. Remember that night at the upper room, which we talk about when Jesus gathered with the disciples. He was gathering with his friends. Judas was one of them. He was there. And he would be the one that would betray Jesus. Jesus would be arrested and brought before the Sanhedrin, the religious leaders. Jesus' faith. And they would bring him before them and they accuse him of blasphemy. They spit on him. They strike him. And then in the aftermath of that, probably his closest friend, who happened to come close enough to at least see what's going on, Peter, denies him three times. I don't know him. I don't know him. I don't know him. Jesus is then brought before Pilate, where he is again tried. And this time he's brought before a crowd. A week ago, a week prior to this, he'd been before a crowd as well when he was coming into Jerusalem. And remember, they cried out when he came into Jerusalem and they said, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They praised his name. He's before the crowd again. And this time their cries are different. This time it's crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. And he's taken by the Romans. And he is whipped and beaten to an inch of his life, flesh torn from bone. And the Romans were master executors. They knew how to get you to the brink of death without finishing the job. And they took a crown of thorns, thorns like this, and they fashioned a crown out of it, and they pressed it upon his head, tearing into the flesh of his face. What must Jesus have been thinking? The one who was the very best of humanity as he experienced the worst and the evil of humanity. Scripture says that he who knew no sin became sin so that we would know the righteousness of God. He was there for us. Then they made him carry a cross to a hill the Roman soldiers called Calvaria. Calvary. Golgotha. Golgotha. Either language, Aramaic 
It means the place of the skull. And there he was nailed to the beams. And he was hoisted up between two criminals. And the mocking continued. The derision continued. The disrespect continued. All of that is going on. And the first thing that he says, the first words that he speaks, our Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Ah, I can't comprehend it. I can't imagine it. Because Jesus in that moment shows us the very nature of God. When Jesus was on the cross, forgiveness was on his mind. Paul would later say in 1 Timothy, here's a trustworthy saying that it deserves full acceptance. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He goes on to say, of which I am the worst. Now that title's up for debate, but we get the point. 1 John says that if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. How do we know God is so faithful? Because Jesus models it in a place where we would be wishing revenge and retribution and justice on those who have wronged us in ways beyond comprehension. Jesus is offering forgiveness and grace. I have conversations from time to time with people who will say to me, if you only knew what I'd done, if you only knew the mistakes I'd made, the sins I'd committed, the, the wrongs I've inflicted upon people, you'd know God can't forgive me. We turn to Luke chapter 23. And we talk about this story. And we read those words, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And I ask graciously and compassionately, tell me again who God can't forgive? Tell me, tell me again who doesn't qualify? Why we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's the good news of the gospel. While he was on the cross, forgiveness was on his mind. That's our story. That's the invitation God gives. That is the hope that we have to live into that, to tell that story. And when we begin to really, really think about that, we begin to allow the profound and unfathomable nature of God's grace and forgiveness to sink in, then it leads to two things. There are just two things that it has to produce when we allow it to really be real and impactful in our lives. And the first is this. It leads us to worship. It leads us to worship a God whose love for us is so great we can't comprehend it. It leads us to worship for a God who says to us, you are forgiven. And so we sing our songs of praise. We tell the story of faith. We live Jesus. We become, a, and I don't mean just to worship for an hour on Sunday. I mean we worship every day. Thanking God for his goodness. And for his grace, we become a people of worship. But then this is the other thing it does. We are reminded that as we have been forgiven, oh, here it comes. We're called to forgive. We are called to forgive. Paul says in Ephesians 4, be compassionate and love one another, forgiving each other. We are called to forgive. I wish that was a suggestion. I wish Jesus had said, here's my recommendation. 
I wish you'd said, you know what, I'd really like for you to try. I'd really love to tell you that it's, it's, a, it's a hope. But the honest truth is it's not. It's a command. It's, it's a call. We pray it every Sunday. Every Sunday, together we say, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who have sinned against us. Forgive us our wrongs as we forgive those who have wronged us. If that doesn't make you squirm every once in a while, then you're just not thinking about it. But that's what Christ calls us to. And it is hard. But it changes us and it changes the world. This weekend in St. Petersburg, young woman was speaking, is speaking, or has been speaking, I should say. Her name is uh, Immokali Ilbagiza. Immokali Ilbagiza. She is from Rwanda. She is a survivor of the Rwandan genocide that happened in 1994. In a hundred days in Rwanda, in violence that broke out between the Hutu and the Tutsi uh, clans in Rwanda, there in Central Africa, 800,000 people were killed. 800,000 people. She is one of the survivors. She's of the, the Tutsi clan that was suffering the violence. And she survived because her parents sent her to the home of a pastor who was of the, um, the Hutu tribe, which was the ones perpetrating the violence. He wasn't, but he was of that tribe, so he was safe. Sent her to his house to hide her. And so he... Hid her along with five other women, six women, hidden in a bathroom in the back corner of the house that nobody visited that was about four by three. Six women in a four by three bathroom for 91 days with very few opportunities to step outside the doors. All to keep them alive because anybody of the Tutsi tribe were being hunted to be killed. 91 days after 91 days when um, the liberation forces came in, they were able to run through the middle of the night, the couple miles they needed to get to a refugee camp where they would be protected. And she was saved. But her celebration was short-lived because in that genocide, she lost her mother, her father, and her two brothers. Almost her entire family was executed in the Rwandan genocide. She would later go on to write a book about her experiences, and the title of that book is Left to Tell. And she started a charity, Left to Tell Charity, for orphans who had become orphans in the Rwandan genocide. But the rubber hit the road for her a year or two after when she came face to face with some of the men who had executed her parents. And her faith professed became faith lived out when she offered them not anger but love. When she offered them forgiveness. I saw an interview from 60 Minutes with Immokalee. And that interview, part of that interview was her sitting next to the men who had killed her parents and her family. That is when faith becomes real. 
when she chose to not meet hatred with hatred, anger with hatred, anger with, with violence, but to meet it with love and to be a part of the breaking of the cycle of violence. They asked her in the interview, they said, wouldn't revenge have felt good? And she said, no, no, because she was called to the way of Christ. And I heard it said about another case that was very, very similar. It says, in those moments of forgiveness, in those acts of forgiveness, those words that are spoken, more is said in one sentence than a thousand missionaries have preached in a thousand years about the gospel of Jesus Christ, or a thousand preachers have said in a thousand sermons. Because when we forgive, we reflect Jesus. Because we take on the heart and the character of Jesus. And it begins, and today in Rwanda, there is peace. Today in Rwanda, there is recovery, and they still have a ways to go. But it's because of people who refused to seek revenge, but rather offered forgiveness. It is hard, but it's the way of Jesus. When he was on the cross, forgiveness was on his mind. It is called to be on ours. We are called, and we are challenged to live into that kind of faith. And so here's what I say to you. If you need forgiveness, ask for it. Ask for it. If someone seeks of you forgiveness, offer it. And when you know you have received it, as we have, celebrate it. Because when we recognize who Christ is, we begin to take on the character of Christ. We worship. We receive and we offer forgiveness. When he was on the cross, forgiveness was on his mind. As we follow him, may it be on ours. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, that we would live into this challenging call, but the example of Christ, to be a people of forgiveness, to be a people that offer grace, even to those who are most difficult to offer that love and forgiveness to. May we reflect the love of Christ as we worship you, May we seek to be like you. We pray in Jesus' holy name. Amen and amen. And friends, I just invite you now as you're able to stand as we sing our uh, song of commitment this morning, uh, Amazing Grace. Chains are gone, I've been saved.
But God 